We're not crazy, the system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. And today on Madness Radio, uh, we have Celia Brown. Celia is a psychiatric survivor human rights activist. She's the president of the board of the leading international organization that's working against um, forced treatment and drugging, Mind Freedom International. She's also board member of NARPA, which is the National Association of Rights Protection and Advocacy, which is a human rights um, network that does legal advocacy for people in the mental health system. Um, so thanks a lot for joining us today on Madness Radio, Celia, Br- Celia Brown. Thank you, Will. Um, yeah, it's great to have you on on the show. I've I've um, known you, I guess, for a few years now, and always really admired the work that you do as a as a human rights um, activist, going around speaking and working with people around the country and around the world. But I, I don't think, Celia, I've ever actually heard or read your own story of your own psychiatric abuse experience and how you kind of got involved in in the system and and sort of turned into an advocate and a leader and an activist for change maybe we can just start out by you can tell us tell us that story well it's a long story but i'll shorten it for the call um i was hospitalized when i was about 16 years old and i was suffering from trauma and a lot of you know issues that teenagers go through and suffering from depression and i was um forcibly put in the hospital um, at 16 and given all these different kinds of psychiatric drugs which didn't really support me and what my trauma, distress, what I was going through. And I just became like a mental patient, you know, I guess in their eyes. And I really struggled with that, and I struggled with the diagnosis. I was diagnosed with... um, uh, paranoid schizophrenia, and who wouldn't be who's who's being dragged into the hospital? But I found out later that that was the diagnosis that they usually give to African American people, and later on they changed it to you know manic depressive, now it's bipolar disorder. And I don't subscribe to the labels, you know. I only subscribe to my experiences and how I'm feeling which I could be in distress or um, going through depression, but doesn't mean... See, the label always was a problem for me because it, it, it meant that it was defining everything about me and everything about my experience. So no longer am I Celia Brown, but I'm this diagnosis. No longer am I a mom or um, my, mom, my mother and father's daughter. I'm this diagnosis. And it really distressed me. It didn't help me get well. So I really had to dig deep, and I was hospitalized four or five times in and out of the hospital during a period from like 1980 to 1988. So when Celia, when you say that you were depressed, and certainly um, you know teenagers and 16, it's I mean it's an incredible time of emotional turmoil and just total upheaval, mental emotional upheaval. But what what kinds of things were happening that actually led you to the point of getting forced into the hospital? And it also it sounds like you know, the experience itself kind of provoked you and sort of made things a lot worse, and then that contributed to your state, and then that sort of led them to giving you this uh, diagnostic label. But what was what was really going on at that moment when you kept going into the hospital? Well, I, um, I, I, I feel like that I wasn't really being listened to by my family, and that I was in a lot of kinds of situations that teenagers get into, like drugs and hanging out with the wrong people, um, that led to me, to people singling me out, my family and others, rather than looking at their own behavior. Um, And I suffered from, I was sexually abused as well, and I think that that had led to a lot of distress and a lot of um, paranoia and thinking that people were, following me, which was a, a normal reaction to that situation. 
And so I had to be, um, I guess, in their eyes, I needed to be hospitalized um, for that. So it sounded like you, you sounded like you yourself needed help, but also your family was kind of having some some problems and wasn't able to communicate with you or pr- provide the support for you. And then there was abuse going on, and and then the system, the system just, the system just really ignored all that. They didn't really address. Well, yeah, they didn't even ask me what happened to me when I was sexually abused. They didn't ever ask me about it. They just took a label on me, and I never discussed it. So what I need, what I, what ultimately happened is I had to swallow all of those feelings about the incident, you know, the physical act, until a later date. It wasn't until maybe like 1986 where I did meet a psychiatrist who I was able to talk about my experience in being abused, and she really helped me work through that work through all of those feelings and things that I was going through. So I have to I have to credit her for helping me do that, but I was still in the hospital and I was in it for a while, a long time. And I think one of the reasons why I was in for a long time because there was because there was no um well there was there was no um uh you know, there was there was no housing at the time. Like, oh, they have all this housing now. There was no housing. So you you spent several months um, in lockup. It sounds like. When you say lockup, you mean just on a lock unit? Uh, well, just being there against your will, basically. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny that I was I was uh, involuntary patient, and then I think that I signed some kind of papers that made me voluntary, so it was like kind of a tricky thing that they did. You know? Yeah, tell me about it. It's the involuntary voluntary. I mean, I've, so many people I've talked to said, well, I was. they told me I was there voluntarily, but they said if I tried to leave, they would put me in involuntary. <laughs> so it's very tricky. Well, I, became, I was involuntary at the beginning when it first happened. And then I was... Um, uh, you know, so I was just on that status. And then as they worked on discharge plans, I mean, the second time I went in the hospital, um, I was, I, get, I think I was voluntary because my family took me in. And um, I guess I was willing to go at the time. I didn't feel like I had a choice. So. And the, so the psychiatrist that you, it sounds like that was really the luck of the draw, was that you just got lucky and found this, this I person? I got lucky because I had a new, a young psychiatrist that just starting out and was really eager to learn and learned a lot from me. And that made a real difference for you? Yes. And, and so, and, and believing in your abuse experiences and talking about what had happened to you sounds pretty crucial as well. Yes, yes. And and yeah. I know I know from reading studies that there have been studies done that say a psychiatrist will meet two people and one is white, the other is African American, and they're much more likely to give the African American a more serious diagnosis. It sounds like that's what happened to you, is that you were put in this kind of racist scenario where you were given a much heavier kind of diagnosis than someone who wasn't African-American. And have you, have you seen that as a consistent pattern in the mental health system, that kind of systemic uh, racism? Um, yes. And uh, just sort of that people, just really, people who are African-American in other cultures weren't really taken seriously about what their needs were, weren't giving information that maybe they were giving to other patients. But I think in general, I think it was everybody, not just a a culture, but I think particularly we don't normally get a lot of the information that everybody else gets. And so what happened, was the psychiatrist really the turning point? Is that sort of when you started to get Mm -hmm. out of the system? And what sort of happened next in the story? Um, then I went to housing. I lived in a, like a group home with other people that had diagnosis. And I think for me, it sort of helped me out a lot to really find myself and to become independent. There still was a lot of discrimination, and I didn't always feel like I was treated with respect and with choice. Um 
but um, at least I had the opportunity to live on my own. And then so you slowly started to get better. And then when did you kind of start to get involved as an advocate and an activist? And when did you start putting putting things together in kind of a political perspective? I had went to, well, I always knew that something was wrong with taking all these medications. And it was wrong for me to be locked up. I always knew that. And my family is always, has been in the civil rights movement. And although at the time I think they were listening to the doctors, I think my mother was my best advocate because they were going to transfer me when this is when I was 16 to like a state hospital. I was in a county hospital for long term. And she she didn't sign the papers and she said, I don't want my child to get custodial care. And she just, you know, everyone was telling her to, to, to put me into a hospital you know, to lock me up further, and she said no, and she took a stand, so I'm really thankful for that. And this is a time when I didn't know about the movement existed or any of these other things that we have now, and she just knew in her heart that I was going to get better, and I think that helped me a lot. Wow, and her uh, her experience with the civil rights movement maybe taught her to not always trust authority and to maybe look a little bit more deeply at the politics of the situation. Right, right. Um, but so I, the other thing is, I went to a conference called the Self Help Vision Conference in Troy, New York, in like 1988, I believe. And I met all these wonderful activists. I met Judy Chamberlain, Joe Rogers at night. And they were all talking about creating these alternatives to the mental health system and that you actually had rights. Now, I was still in a housing program, and for them, I guess they felt I was high-functioning, another buzzword in the mental health system, and they let me go. And I started, I was so inspired by their stories about what they were doing that I came back and I developed my own self-help groups to change the way that we were doing things in my housing program and that people did have rights, and they didn't have to just go along with whatever the professional said, that they could think for themselves. They actually could do it, you know? So I think then, probably at that point, that was kind of a form of supported decision-making, whereas at that time, they never thought that people that were labeled with a mental illness could make their own decisions and, and have a fulfilling life. You know, every, they had to be set up in all these kinds of programs, and get all this help that they couldn't do it on their own. So you were really blazing a trail, you kind of on your own initiative after being inspired at, at this conference, you just on your own started a self-help group at the housing. Wow, that's amazing. Do you think that the, the climate of your family and having grown up around the civil rights movement, do you think it helped contribute to your sense of, you know, I can make a difference and I can be a leader here and I can make some change? I think so. I really, now that I think about it, yeah, I think so. We've always were having discussions about the civil rights movement and what happened. And, you know, my aunt was in one of the sit-ins in Greenboro, North Carolina. It's a picture of her. You know, it was so much rich history that it really sort of molded my experiences. And I was always sort of like rebellious against authority and just kind of, didn't always trust them to to have my 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 um my needs met. I just didn't think that uh, that they would really support me, and they did. <laughs> right. What do you think are the parallels? Because a lot of people would say, "Oh, well, the civil rights movement—that's completely different than the mental health system. That's just a totally different." And so, what do you think are some of the the parallels between the two the two issues and the two movements? Well, in the civil rights movement people uh, of color were told that they they had no equal rights to um, society, to um, white people in society. They had no rights. And that they were second-class citizens. And I think in the mental health system, that's, that's kind of a parallel that, that people with a diagnosis are seen as second-class citizens and not really seen as uh, contributing people to society or different. You know, I think people in the, in the civil rights movement were different 
and because they were different, well, one, I mean, there's many reasons, but because they were seen as being different and not look looking like the majority, you know, that, um, you know, it's sort of the same thing in a mental health system, that somehow we're going there to be fixed and to be, quote, normal or to be like everybody else. And difference is the fabric of our society. Was that really the beginning? Did you kind of start with these, um, with this self-help group, and then just things kind of grew from there in terms of your own involvement as an activist and advocate? Yeah, it, it grew with. Um, well, I think one of the things that really helped me a lot is I left the system, and I decided that I wasn't going to go back, and I, I took some classes in college. And then I became, there was a federal grant called the Peer Specialist Project. And I remember talking to my dad about my feelings about going back to the hospital. And he said, you know, this might be your opportunity to really help people get out of the system, and it might be a great opportunity for you. So I went back, and I was involved in a three-year grant to, to work with um to use my experience as a peer and someone who went to the mental health system to really help my other peers um, get back into the community and really be in their own recovery. And I think it was a very successful thing for me to be a part of. It helped me a lot to give back and to be with my peers. Because I always I was always helping, even on the unit, always helping people, people always coming to me to talk about their, their issues. And really, I, that that's what really was a part of my healing, is to help other people and help them get what it is that they need. I always hated any kind of injustice, you know? Celia, tell us a little bit about the work that you do today as um, president of the board of Mind Freedom International. And also, I know you've been doing a lot um, international work on the level of international law and the Disability Rights Convention with the United Nations. Well, there's a, con- where there's a convention. It's called the Convention for the Rights of People with Disabilities. It's had a lot of different kinds of names for it, but it's now um, a convention. It was completed in um, 2006. And now what we're doing is waiting for at least 20 countries to ratify it, you know, so that they can implement that, the convention in their country, countries. And I think it's a really great turning point of this. It, it put the consumer survivor or user survivor, as they call it, movement on the map with other people with disabilities, like people who were blind or deaf or had some other kind of disability that we were going to work together as one because usually everything is separated. Like mental health is over here and people that have physical disabilities is over there. And we decided that for us, we're going to work together as one. And we're going to work through the issues of understanding what happens to someone that has a mental health diagnosis as far as forced treatment or their rights being taken away that we did a lot of educating our own constituencies as well as as educating different governments about this issue, that we have to be treated, we have the right to our own treatment or or not treatment. We have a right to what works for us, and we need to be listened to, and we need our own autonomy and self-determination. And I think it was wonderful, and it really it, it really energized me, and I think it energized a lot in our, in our movement here in the U.S. Has the U.S. Uh, signed the uh, convention yet? No, and I, I don't believe... There's some campaigns for the U.S. to ratify the convention, but I don't think that they will. Maybe when we have a new government. I mean, who knows? But I think the most important part of the convention is that it's it's taken out of the medical model of looking at not just people with psychiatric disabilities but all disabilities. It's a human it's it's within a human rights context that we have a right to life, we have a right to education, 
okay? And um, we have a right to liberty and freedom. Do you think that historically there's there have been a lot of obstacles and difficulties with the user-survivor movement, people who've been in the mental health system and dealt with psychiatry, um, between um, us and the rest of the disability rights movement, there's been kind of a distance or a suspicion or a difficulty working together. And what do you think are the obstacles, the obstacles there? Well, I think it's oppression, you know, and I think that because some people have been damaged by the mental health system, um, there's, there's a level of distrust that falls upon their peers. And I think that that's what has happened to some people in the movement, and it's really unfortunate. But I think the positive thing about us is that when there's an issue, we come together in force. We are very good with people power. We have the power to come together to fight a cause. And I always have admired that. We don't frame from uh, the notion of forced treatment. You know, it is what it is, and we work together to fight that. I think what we need to do more is to strategize on the long term of what all of these issues that are facing us so that we just don't react to something in the paper, you know, um, like outpatient commitment or something like that, that we have a strategic plan that we all can work towards. And I think the spirit of cooperation, which Mind Freedom is about, that we need to work together and support each other. If we're going to fight these really difficult battles, that we need support for one another. I think one of the, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that strategic thinking is really important. And I think that the, um, the challenge is when we look at, you know, the experience that you had uh, being forced into the hospital, having people not listen to your abuse experiences, um, putting, putting this terrible diagnosis on you, making you take these drugs, the experience that I had, which is very um, similar in a lot of ways. My own experience wasn't listened to. was given all these drugs, forced into the hospital. And then you have society and the mainstream that says, well, we have to do this because that's really these people need help and they don't know how to give it to themselves and we can't really listen to them because they're in distress and they're they can't communicate and and then i think you know it becomes a question of not just saying okay let's stop the forced treatment let's stop um, the human rights abuses it becomes a question of let's dig into the reasoning behind those things and let's come up with alternative ways to help people and i you know i was um talking with you before about um a speech that I heard you give in New York, I guess about a year and a half ago, where you talked about this idea of supportive decision making, because I think that for a lot of people, you know, the um, the idea that someone who's in a psychiatric crisis or an extreme state of consciousness or madness or whatever you want to call it, the idea that yes, we can make decisions for ourselves. Yes, we can direct our own healing. We can um, enjoy and use our own right to self-determination. That's a very you know radical kind of concept, but it's actually really true. And I think a lot of it comes down to you know this question of supported decision-making. Are people put into a context where they can actually be supported in helping them communicate and helping them express themselves like a uh, like a support group like having peers but let's um, let's talk about that i mean what's your vision for a kind of an alternative way of dealing with people who are in very extreme states who may be talking in very confusing ways who may be hearing voices or seeing visions and just in a very remote different state of of consciousness well i think that well first of all i think that people need the room to be able to be in distress or hear voices or whatever they're doing um, without having a quick fix because all of us are different and complex human beings and it really takes someone to really, and I'm not saying that we have all the answers to someone who's going through difficult situations and challenges, but we need, need to be there to step back and just be non-judgmental and really work with the person, talk to the person about what it is that's going on. You know, and sometimes it takes a while, but
But I think if I've seen people that I've worked with who've been in extreme states, and because I cared, now this is not scientific, but because I cared and I was able to listen and not rush them through whatever they were going through, they eventually went out got out of this because inherently I know that there is a piece in that person that's been broken, that that um, that there's hope there, and that there's more than I can that that I can um, hope is seeing beyond what you see in the reality that what you see as it is. Like if you see someone in distress, you know you don't place a judgment. They're never going to get better. You have positive affirmations that they are going to get better. And once you do that, they will get better in their own time. And they'll be able to figure out what it is that they need. Now, I think with support and decision-making, sometimes they may not know what decision to make in their lives. But if they have information and they have someone who's caring, who's willing to work with them in their healing process, then they'll be able to do it. I really believe it. I've seen it happen. And I think that we need to not have quick fixes in life for people that realize that people go through so much um, and the human spirit could just be broken and, and just one shot if you're not there to be uh, supportive. And even if you don't understand everything that they're going through, you're going to look beyond what you can see. That's what hope's about. It's just like looking at the air that we breathe. You know, we may not see it, but we know it's there because we know that's how we breathe. We know oxygen is there. I think it's the same thing. What kinds of um, concrete changes would the mental health system need to make um, to sort of realize this vision? Because it sounds like a lot of what you're describing is really having good, compassionate people available to talk to people. Yes. Um, I think there's a number of... of, of things that people can do. I mean, I think that support groups are very helpful, although I don't know that everyone thinks that they're helpful, but they are because it's with people who have similar experiences. And just by sharing about what your experience is, another person in the group could say, wow, I can identify with that. So you're not alone anymore. And you're with like-minded people. And then that's sometimes when you begin to heal. And I know for me, that's happened for me. I think um, people who, even if there aren't a lot of, there's not a lot of alternatives available for people, but if they can um, sort of do sort of like a plan for themselves, like map out some of the short-term and long-term goals they want in their life, then I think that that helps people to figure out what it is that they would like to, how they would like to heal. And it could be housing is one issue that people need. Um, where can they go where they can go to, in housing and they can feel good about where they live? I think it, it, it really helps with recovery. I think work or any kind of community service or volunteer work really helps people to heal and to recover. So is this a matter of the of funding in the system or the priorities or is it the sort of the, the vision that the people who run mental health services have? Yeah, it's the vision that if you have housing, you have friends, you have a home. Um, that And I've talked to peers themselves. These are things that help them feel a part of society and not feeling sick all the time or, you know, someone saying that they're sick or they have an illness, that they can be contributing members of society and they can be who they are and they don't have to be, quote, normal because what is normal? But they can be who they are, you know, and and they don't have to, you know, they can be on, on their journey of discovering of who they are because we're always, we're changing human beings. But when they have things that are sort of concrete, like housing, work, employment, going to school, all of these things really contribute to a person's well-being and how they see themselves in the world. 
And what do you think are the the kind of the obstacles to this? As I was saying before, like, I'm, I'm, is it a funding issue, or is it is it just the uh, sort of the ideology and the the worldview that the doctors and and mainstream care providers have, or what is it that stands in the way of us making these these changes to a different um, different system? I think it's ideologically, and I think sometimes it's the power of people and laws that keep people oppressed rather than having them um, unoppressed, lack of a better word, you know. And I think if we change the laws, and because I think what stands in the way is that this notion that people are dangerous to society, and I think that was what drives some of the laws that come out. And it interferes with someone's healing because if someone just does something wrong in society or, or as or it appears to society that that's not appropriate behavior, then everybody else suffers from that one act. And I think that that is what keeps people um, in these little kinds of, um, you know, keeps people from moving forward in their life. And I think the public needs to be aware because anybody in any family could come down with some kind of distress and be put into the mental health system. And I th- that's why I think there has to be some improvements. And I think there are some improvements in the mental health system, but it has to go further that people can make decisions in their own life that they don't have to have decisions made for them because ultimately it's their life. And we need to work with people in partnership and realize this is a person, not an illness, not a non-person. And I think that that's what happens sometimes. Do you think that the, um, I mean, how much sort of change would need to take place? I mean, do you think that the current emergency services hospitalization um, approach would just need to be completely scrapped? Or do you imagine people kind of arriving at the hospital and there being people there to help them in a different way? Or what do you, what do you um, see this sort well, of I transformation think, oh, I being? Think, I think we need alternatives for people to go to. I, don't, I think we don't point to it enough that it's just what is, like the emergency room. But I also think that people in the emergency room, if they're going, they might not have all the information about Mind Freedom or the Freedom Center or all these other great alternatives, that they might need some peers there, peer advocates, to work with them to be to role model what is possible because I think you know just talking to the doctors and nurses and social workers um, may be okay but it, I think it's also good to have someone who's been there and who can help them navigate the system and can help them really feel good about themselves by giving them resources and information doing peer counseling and self-help so that they know, wow, there are other people like myself that might have gone through this, and it's not just me. Because the, the one lonely thing that I think just for myself is when you are feeling isolated, like no one else is going through this, and you're the only person. And of course, in theory, that's not happening, but you feel that way, and it really contributes to your distress. So if they see other people who are role models in the emergency room, who are peer advocates or peer specialists, I think that that will that's significant. I really do. So you mentioned the peer um, the peer movement and the the growth of peer advocates. I mean that's something that's really changed over the past twenty years. Twenty years we didn't really have the peer movement. Can you just tell us about that and a little bit of the history of that? And for people who maybe don't. No, because there now are, there is funding now for peers to be involved in the system and peer services and that kind of thing. Well, there's two kind of things. Well, there's a peer specialist that works with the system, may work with, um, prof- you know, mental health professionals, providers, through case management, um, through rehabilitation services. And this is something that 
not only helps the peer or the recipient of mental health services, it helps the peer specialist in their own recovery because work does lead to recovery, I believe. And so because they've gone through the system and they have some experiences, one of the criteria is that you have to be someone who's gone through the mental health system. And that's a very valuable tool and a valuable expertise that helps educate uh, the, the recipients of mental health services. The ultimate goal, I believe, is, and it's in, in the uh, job description, is to teach people how to advocate for themselves. And that's a kind of supported decision-making, as you mentioned before. So when you're going with someone to sort of get benefits, like going to get disability entitlements, you're not just going with them. You're teaching them about it as you're sitting there in the office about this is what we're going to do. We're going to see someone. This is how much you might get a month. This is some of the things you need to be doing, you know. So it's an education process. So that person can go on their own and understand what, 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 what um, entitlements are, are about for themselves. You know, if someone's going shopping with someone rather than going and buying their food, they're going to go with them and help them do a shopping list, you know, and or budget so that they're able to do that on their own, not be, not having a paternalistic attitude. Well, they can't do it. I'm just going to do it for them. These are teaching life skills for people. Do you think that um, there's a downside to some of the peer services, the peer um, specialists, because um, peers can kind of become, they can take the role of the system and be pushing people to take medication or controlling people or being part of forced treatment or this kind of thing? Yeah, I, I, I don't blame the peer specialists on that. I think that when you're in a, a sort of like a situation where you're the only peer and you're fighting for recovery and self-determination and you're uh, around clinical people who don't really believe it, um, I've seen two things happen. Either you become co-opted and start believing in, in getting people to take their meds or whatever, or you drop out of it and it really messes up with the person's recovery. I've seen people leave those jobs as well. But the positive thing that we try to do through training, through supportive um, decision, sort of supportive supervision is something that I give, is to get people talking about what is going on where you're working. Let's work that through so you're not co-opted and you have people around you that are thinking the same things you're thinking so that you don't go in there and you're isolated and you're only thinking that people can recover and other people don't think you can, um, their clients can. Have there been any so, rec- have there been any recent um, big successes with the movement that you find personally in- inspiring that you'd like to tell us about? Well, yes. I think from where I sit, I think one of the successful things is uh, just with mind freedom. We've been creating these mind freedom affiliates where people can get together to support each other and work on goals like changing forced treatment and different laws, but in a supportive way. And I think also I've been working on creating a network of alternatives a directory for people to go to for alternatives. We always talk about you need alternatives, but we need something concrete to point to so that people can start going to yoga or Reiki or a a support group or going to a drug-free center um, to um, safely get off a psychiatric drug. These are things that people are asking for. They've gone through all of this some of the mental health services and might still go to those services but need something else to sustain them in their lives. I think that's very positive because we've always philosophically talked about it, that people need alternatives and people need other things, but we need to see something concrete that people can actually go to. 
Well, there are some, and there there are some that that people are thinking about creating. There's a Soteria house in Alaska, and Will, you have the Freedom Center that's really very successful. I'm proud of knowing about. Thank you. you Thanks know? a lot. And I'm sure there's others. The Syria House is a place that you can go to other than going to um, being hospitalized. You can go to a place where you, you're with your peers and you can heal. I think that's a great model. It was actually started from Lauren Moser, um, who was a psychiatrist. And other people are adapting this model, like Soteria House in Alaska, and there's other places where this model is, is going on, and I think it's wonderful. You mentioned, Celia, before the, um, the importance of having a strategic vision and starting to really not re- react so much to the headlines, but really having a bigger, um, a bigger strategy for the moon. What are your, what are your kind of strategic um, considerations, things that you're thinking about in terms of uh, our politics as a movement and where we, where we need to be going and kind of maybe new directions we need to think about? Well, I think for one, I, I think we need to continue to support each other in the movement. And I think that's going to bring us further. You know, not that we can't agree to disagree, but that we don't tear each other's character down and trying to make points. You know, that we are, we are a, a very, a, a very, intelligent and I love us in the movement because we're very smart and we're and and we have very good ideas that we we just need to keep that together the second thing I think we need to do is um, with the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities we are going to be working on an implementation tool for uh, consumer survivors or people with psychiatric disabilities, so they actually could use this tool in their own lives to do more supportive decision-making if that's what they need. We're not saying that everybody needs support. We're saying if you need support, then you should be able to have that without being forced into in a situation that is not good for you. So I'm excited about doing that in different countries, and even here in the U.S., because I think it's important for people to be able to uh, have self-determination or autonomy in their own lives. I think that that's an important piece. And I think once we start doing that, I think a lot of these other laws and stuff like that may, may, I mean, I could be just naive about it, but that people will have something to turn to. I think it's about people power and supporting people people in our movement or whoever needs our support, you know. I think we have to do it on the grassroots level sometimes. And I also think as a mother and someone who's been hospitalized as a youth, I think we need to grow the youth, people who are experiencing um, distress and challenges. Youth, I think, is the future. And I think we need to work more with them listen to them. Uh, I listen to my son a lot. He's just a great, great, great person. And I think we need to do that, you know, because children are our future and so is youth. And I'm not going to be here forever. And a lot of people who are in the movement are not going to be here. And we need to bring them along listen to their ideas so we keep this going and have maybe new ways of looking at things. I'm open to that at at this point, you know? And the other thing I think we need to do is we need to listen to each other more and listen to the ways in which we all heal and not be in a rush to fix everything because we're impatient with the other person. We need to be patient that they will take whatever time they need to heal and give room for that. I think in society today, we have the Internet, we have all this technology, and people are lonely and need community. We need to build community. Community is what's needed and what's going to sustain us in the future. I really believe well. And I want to work with Freedom Center more. <laughs> hey, that sounds, that sounds great, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's just an amazing honor to have you on the show because, I, you know, I know you've been involved in movement organizing for 25 
more than 25 years. And Celia, can you, do you have a, a sense of how the culture is changing as society is changing in terms of maybe more skepticism about psychiatry and psychiatric medications or more, um, you know, willingness to look at community as a solution or, or maybe, um, uh, you know, more of a uh, interest in holistic health and alternatives. I mean, how do you think that the climate of the culture has changed over the past 25 years of your, um, of your organizing? Well, because I think that now people can trust in their mind, like just within healthcare, everyone went just to get, go to the doctor and get medicine for whatever ailment they were having. I think like with people who are diagnosed with cancer, people have, you know, the medical the chemotherapy or radiation, but there's also been a promotion within self-help organizations like with breast cancer about dealing with yoga, alternative medicine. I'm seeing that more than I've ever seen, and it seems to be more accepted. Now, it's not either or. It's it's both. So if there pe- I don't see people saying don't go to treatment, but you can go to treatment, but also you can go to this alternative. And I think in mental health, I think we're going to see a lot of people saying, look, I've gone through treatment, and yes, it's helped me in some ways, but I need something more. You know, when I'm home and I'm going through distress, it's not just the medication I'm taking, but maybe I can try, you know, yoga or acupuncture or something else that's going to make me feel good and heal me when I'm going through stress, you know, as an example. And I I, I think more and more we're going to see it more, but we need to do more of it because the images I think that people see a lot is take this this medication for feeling anxiety, you know, just everyday stress that a pill is not all there is, is that there's more to a person and what they're experiencing. And we need to have not have a quick fix, but have more things that people, more options that people could look at. And I'm excited that that's happening now. I think it's going to continue in the future because I see more people in our movement and in general public who want more alternatives, want more things, go to church, pray, believe in God, and other things that um, they just can't get from just health care or mental health care, you know? That community is what's going to sustain, like I said, people, that they're going to meet more friends, they're going to have a home, they're going to get married, or whatever it is that they'd like to do, that that's what's going to keep us whole. And, and and healthy. Celia, is the survivor movement growing? Because I know that there have been some recent um, new Mind Freedom uh, affiliates popping up in different parts of, of the world. Can you tell us a little bit about how the movement's growing? Oh, it's growing well. We have, in uh, some parts of the world, we have Mind Freedom Ireland. Uh, we're very excited about them. And they found out about what we were doing and felt like they wanted more support in their own country about fighting force treatment and helping people heal. And we have a Mind Freedom Ghana in Africa that I'm really excited about. And they've been doing like these mad prize activities to educate the public about what it is to be, um, what you know, what mental health is and what healing is about, what human rights is about. And I think that that's spreading a lot than I have ever seen it. And um, you, do you want to know other countries or sure? Is, just let is, us. Is that enough? Or, yeah, no. Let us. Let us. I know. just in general see that, in like the UK, there's things going on. I mean, people are not just connected to mind freedom with things, but they're 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 looking at their lives and the situations that they're in, and they're trying to make a change. And I think it's great. I really do. And I think it's good that they're doing it in a supportive way and an educational way as well to educate the entire public, not just talking to the consumer survivor movement, but but really reaching the public. 
Celia, we are just about out of time. It's been really interesting having you on the show. Are there any uh, last uh, minute um, thoughts you want to leave us with, or maybe people who are tuning in who might be who might be going through some kind of crisis themselves, or who maybe someone who's close to them is going through a crisis and they don't quite know how to how to deal with it? Do you have any words or thoughts for them? Yeah, I, I said really trust yourself and listen to what it is. You know, really try to articulate what you're going through before you go out and seek help because you're going to have a lot of different opinions about what you should do. And and whatever makes sense to you, go with it. You know, if it feels good for you, go with it because it, it, it can't scare you wrong. Celia Brown, thank you so much for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you so much, Will. You've been listening to an interview with Celia Brown. She is a psychiatric survivor, human rights activist, president of the board of Mind Freedom International, and she's a board member of the National Association for Rights Protection and Advocacy. You can get in touch with uh, Celia and find out more about her work and the international survivors movement by going to mindfreedom.org. Uh, That's about all the time we have today on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is broadcast every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Pacifica Affiliate, WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts. For our live internet stream, podcasting, show archives, and more, visit madnessradio.net. Madness Radio is co-produced by Freedom Center and The Icarus Project. For more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. KWMD, Kasilov. 90.7, Anchorage 104.5.